Welcome to the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Friday, April 7th. I'm Andrew Walworth. Donald Trump is now officially the first American president in history to face criminal charges after his arraignment in New York on Tuesday. He followed up his court date with a speech that evening at Mar-a-Lago. And according to Trump World, campaign donations are pouring in, the polls are moving up, and Trump is cruising to both the GOP nomination and the White House. But two separate elections held on that very same Tuesday in Chicago and Wisconsin showed that any GOP candidate for national office might want to reconsider the party's position on such hot-button issues as crime and abortion, as progressive candidates won hard-fought contests centered on those very same topics. And the Biden administration released its internal review of the handling of the disastrous U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. And at least according to the national security staff, it was mostly Donald Trump's fault. Joining me to talk about all this are Real Clear Politics president and co-founder Tom Bevin, Washington Bureau Chief Carl Cannon, and White House correspondent Phil Wegman. So, Carl, I want to start with you. We finally got the Trump indictment included 34 counts of falsifying business records in the first degree. Trump pled not guilty, so no new dramatic charges or evidence was offered up. Uh, What do you make of where this stands now, and what do you think of the case in general? Well, once we saw the indictment, those of us who were skeptical of this legal theory pursued by Alvin Bragg seven years after the fact, it was worse than we thought. And I've heard this from Democrats I know, too, who are dismayed. They, They think this will just make Donald Trump a martyr and people who may not have even wanted to vote for him will have to vote for him out of principle. I don't know that changes anything in terms of perspective, but 34 counts, that's called, what is that called? Stacking. (laughs) That's what prosecutors call it for basically one transaction. Uh, The transaction itself doesn't seem to be a violation of any law. Alvin Bragg said it was, but then when asked about it, said, oh, I don't have to say what law it was. That's, that's not part of the, I don't have to put that in the indictment. We learned, if you watched his press conference, and I did, that the prosecutor in New York, he told us six or seven times that he investigated cases for 24 years. District Attorney Al Bragg is well-named, I'll say that, but but he never told us what this theory is. And there's there's three things about it that everybody's looked at, it's talked about. One is these technical violations of, of New York law. We don't exactly know what they are, filling out paperwork. One can extrapolate that Michael Cohen is his, Trump's lawyer at the time is saying he's doing legal work for Donald Trump, but Alvin Bragg is saying it wasn't really legal work. It was hush money. Secondly, the statute of limitations, it's a two-year statute of limitations, so it's long lapse. He didn't address that, why he waived that. And he didn't address why he thinks he can bootstrap a, a federal charge on top of a state charge, uh, even though the federal charge paying hush money for a, to cover up a tryst doesn't seem to even be in violation of federal finance, campaign law. He says it was a violation of New York state law, but when somebody asked him about it, he couldn't point to the law in question. So it, it's really a steaming pile of crap. And when Israel's dodging missiles and China's threatening Taiwan and the French are rioting over having to work until they're 63 years old, to have Ukrainians being slaughtered by Russians, to have our political system look cartoonish at this time, it doesn't seem like a luxury. It seems like it's pretty dangerous. Well, Tom, you know... Um the House Judiciary Committee uh, ordered up a subpoena on Thursday to one of uh, the former New York prosecutors, a guy named Mark Pomerantz. What's going on there? And are we going to have this tit for tat now? Are we going to have a congressional investigation run by Jim Jordan that's going to be investigating Alvin Bragg? And where does this end or does it? I, I don't know where it ends. I don't think anybody does. I think we're just getting started. You have seen Republicans call on and 
suggest that DAs and and attorneys general around the country from red states might look at ways to wage lawfare, as it's being called, uh, against Democrats and indict them on charges because they can now, because that's the new norm. So I, I don't think we know where this ends. Probably nowhere good. <laughs> I mean, look, the way things are trending in this country, I mean, I do think Democrats have encouraged this and do not seem concerned with the precedent or do not seem concerned enough with the precedent that this is setting and, and where this may lead. To many of them, the ends justify the means when it comes to Donald Trump. He is the singular evil that must be stopped in this country, and they've proven that they'll go to whatever lengths are necessary to stop him. So, Phil, I was curious. There's sort of this bank shot theory here, that this is part of the big plot on the part of the Democrats to actually help Trump win the nomination, because I think he would then lose to Biden in the general. So here's how Victor Davis Hanson put it. He said, the leftist legal vendetta is designed to win him just enough empathy to be nominated the Republican Party's presidential candidate, but then to keep on indicting, gagging, and hemorrhaging him legally until election day 2024. I'm not sure there's actually that kind of coordination, but the hate for Donald Trump is very real in the Democratic Party. And certainly, if you go back and look at our reporting from last summer, there are those who are close to the current president who have openly said that they would love to run against Donald Trump because they already know the playbook. They think that it would be an easy rematch. On the other side of things, it's undeniable that this is helping Donald Trump in the short term. His own pollster, his Trump campaign, they told me that. They said uh, that they have seen a big boost in internal numbers showing that he is not just the front runner, but that he is you know, pulling away from DeSantis and Pence and some of these others. And that's been verified not just by their internal polling, but by external polls as well. The question, though, is whether or not this type of momentum can be sustained because the Trump campaign is not so much afraid of the legal jeopardy in New York. They're afraid that what happens in Manhattan sets a precedent for the other investigations in Georgia, You know, the DOJ special counsel that's looking into him. They're worried that if the Manhattan judge says maybe a gag order is prudent and we need to put that in place, um, or if he creates some sort of room for these other prosecutors to maneuver and sort of takes the pressure off of them by going first, well, then this actually could be much more difficult for Trump if he is f facing multiple gag orders and he can't talk about not just Stormy Daniels, but also election interference in Georgia or January 6th. The other fear that has been expressed in, in the GOP uh, more widely is, all right, Republicans, it was kind of easy for them to rally around the flag for Trump on this point, on this specific prosecution. But it's going to be more difficult if there's more investigations in, in Georgia and they actually do have uh, facts and documents. And maybe then at that point, Donald Trump has, has run out of steam. Tom, I mean, it, we do see this bump in the, in the polls for Trump. I think uh, it showed up in the Real Clear Politics average with this new Rasmussen poll that had a seven-point bump for Trump and is uh, facing off against Biden. I think it put Trump ahead in the Real Clear average right now. The thing is that if you buy the Victor Hansen uh, line, this is 
all working right according to plan. If you're a Democrat, you want to see a bump in the polls now because you want him to sew up the nomination so that they can beat him in November. Well, I mean, there's no question that Trump is experiencing a bump in the polls. On January 9th, he was ahead of Ron DeSantis by 14.3 points in our real clear politics average. Okay. Fast forward. On March 22nd, he was ahead by 14.9%. Okay. So that's that's what, two weeks ago. Now he's ahead by 26 points. His lead has grown. He's actually over 50% support in the Republican primary now. And DeSantis has gone from about 30% down to 24 and a half. So he has gained and much of that uh, or at least some of that has come at the expense of Ron DeSantis and various other candidates, but they don't have much support to begin with. So it's it's certainly the case that voters, Republican voters have rallied around Trump in the short term. The question is, of course, you know, will this last? Is this temporary? Um, can this be sustained as this legal battle plays out over the course of the coming weeks and months? And as Phil said, you know, with probably more charges coming, so we'll see this pattern, you know, potentially repeat itself. I do think perhaps one of the reasons that Trump is getting support now is because these charges seem, as Carl pointed out earlier in the broadcast, uh, to be a steaming pile of shit <laughs> was his language. <laughs> I didn't use the S word, Tom, but you, oh, sorry. Well, there, you know, you got the gist. <laughs> I work, I work blue, Carl. Um, no, but. Because they seem to be such a stretch, so nakedly political. I mean, just even by the accounts of of many liberals and folks who are who are not Trump supporters or Trump apologists. Maybe later, uh, if these other charges are viewed as more serious, uh, more legitimate, that that will actually have the opposite effect and push some people away from Trump. I, it's a, it's really really hard to say in this political vi- environment. All we know is that for right now, he has gotten a bump. But Tom, isn't the isn't the worry? I mean, if you're a Democrat here, that whatever comes, these charges will look less legitimate. It looks like an organized effort to get the guy. I mean, let's go back a couple of years. The House Democrats impeached President Trump, and it was only decided in the Senate on a party line vote for a phone call he made to the new president of Ukraine, Zelensky, implying, implying that the United States might withhold aid if he didn't produce some information uh, detrimental to the Bidens, if he didn't go find the server, whatever crazy thing Trump had in his pea brain. Anyway, they impeached him over this. And they said in the impeachment over and over and over again, these House managers, this is the president. He's, he's going after a potential political opponent of his. Well, now, two years later, Biden, who was a political opponent of Trump and defeated him, now you have that guy going after his, his Justice Department investigating criminal investigations against this guy for a raft of things ranging from the riot on January 6th to withholding uh, documents that are supposed to go to the the National Archives. The double standard here, I think people see through it. People who would never vote for Trump are troubled by this. And so, and even talking about gag orders on a presidential candidate, think of it, think how un-American that is. I was comparing it to Ukraine. Let's think about Russia for a minute. Putin has a political opponent, Alexei Navalny. And what did Putin do? They went after his business. They discredited him publicly. They gagged him and they tried to put him in prison. Well, now the Democrats are going after Trump's business, trying to discredit him, trying to put him in prison and talking about gag orders. It makes us look un-American. And so the, the risks of the Democrats here, in my view, if they get Trump the nominee, how do they know that they can defeat him? You say that they have a playbook for it, but that was before this. 
are there going to be enough Americans who are going to be offended? Americans who would never have considered voting for Trump, who think that, to quote the Democrats, democracy would be on the ballot in 2024. To me, that's the risk here for the Democrats. Suppose it's a two-person race. First of all, there's no assurance Trump would lose anyway, because you never know. But what about radicalizing people who are in the middle, people who didn't like Trump to begin with? That's what I'm curious about. Well, we did have this CNN poll, too, which showed that uh, just came out uh, yesterday, I guess, showing that Biden's support is down. And now it's a third of the country thinks that he should uh, he should run again or be reelected. Tom, any thoughts that the Democrats might have played this wrong? Again, I, I think we have to we have to wait and see. As far as Biden goes, though, I mean, the, the polls continue to show his support is pretty soft. You know, and Biden's been sort of stringing this out. Is he going to run? Yes. He keeps saying after the State of the Union oh, in April, now they're saying it may be longer than that. And and so they've uh, they've kind of strung this out. We'll see how much longer they can do that. But his support is pretty darn soft. I think there are plenty of Democrats out there who'd like to move on from him as well as, as Republicans want to move on from Trump. Phil, you know, A.B. Uh, Stoddard on this podcast uh, has a couple times said that she does not believe that Joe Biden will run again. You're over in the White House. Are you feeling that at all? Because it is remarkable that he has not announced and he's sort of stretching this out and he said he would do it after the State of the Union. And technically, I guess we are after the State of the Union. But, you know, people are talking about September. Is that possible? A.B. has a lovely theory, and I've been looking for uh, a fact pattern to back it up. As of right now, though, the administration is doing everything that you would expect them to do for a second run other than coming out and saying, I'm running for president for a second term. Um, We've seen some staff quietly leave the White House and sort of exist in limbo with the expectation that they would go to the campaign. The president has you know, an apparatus uh, built up outside that is going to plug some of his wins. He's gone to uh, a number of, of states that will be critical to a, a general election. I think that like all presidents, the responsibility of office is weighing on him. And it hasn't been easy, especially after the Afghanistan withdrawal uh, last summer. But I don't yet believe that Joe Biden is at all interested in in, uh, backing out of a second run. Wait, for our listeners, there's a reason that Andy didn't ask Tom and I about that, because we have to recuse ourselves from talking about whether Joe Biden uh, is running for re-election. And for those of you who are turning in for their first time, there's a bottle of 2018 um, Napa Valley Silver Oak Cabernet writing on it. Um, I can already taste it. But Tom's beginning to think that he's, he may be in the running. He's beginning. To, the longer Biden waits, the more that wine ages in, in the cellar and the better it gets. So now we have to wait till autumn to settle the bet, it looks like, Tom. So if if Donald Trump was not running for president again, then maybe Biden says, yeah, I save the republic. I can ride into the sunset beloved by Democrats and go play golf or whatever else former presidents do. But I think that with Trump at the gates, that quiets a lot of the progressive consternation that he hasn't gone farther. And it says to an upstart like California Governor Gavin Newsom, stay in your lane and wait a while because I beat this guy previously. I can beat him again. And any challenger 
that would run against Donald Trump. Um, they certainly don't want to be the Ted Kennedy to Jimmy Carter uh, again. They don't want to cause any problems in the ranks You know, when they're preparing to confront what they have repeatedly said is an existential threat in Donald Trump. Well, Tom, let's talk about these two elections uh, that happened out in your neck of the woods there. Um, you had Brandon Johnson won the mayor's race in Chicago, which means you actually have a mayor now who is the left of Lori Lightfoot, which is remarkable, I think. And in Wisconsin, you had this progressive Democratic candidate, uh, Janet Protasiewicz, uh, win an open seat on the state Supreme Court. Two big wins for progressives. What are the lessons from that? And what does it say about the sort of strength of progressivism uh, this year and in, in the, the coming elections? Let's take the Wisconsin Supreme Court race. I mean, there was, I think, $45, $50 million spent on that, which is just an outrageous sum of money when you think about it. And progressives outspent conservatives by something like five to one. It's being heralded as another show of strength for Democrats and liberals and progressives in in a post-Dobbs environment that this was all about. This was all about abortion. And I'm sure that was part of it. I'm not sure, you know, that might be overstating the case somewhat, but but listen, it wasn't even close. I mean, it was 10 points. This was not a squeaker. And so I think conservatives need to they need to start paying attention to to these races and turn out at the same level as the Democrats if they can. I mean, maybe they can. Maybe Wisconsin has actually moved the needle and it's no longer a you know swing state. Here in Chicago, astonishing. I mean, absolutely astonishing. Great piece in the Sun-Times this morning from Fran Spielman. We ran it on Real Clear Politics, talking about how Brandon Johnson did this. This guy was a nobody six months ago and the Chicago's teachers union got behind him and he's a former teacher, and um, they absolutely plowed all this money into his campaign, got him into second place. He makes the runoff, and then he runs a campaign which you know he carried, and he did it. Listen, I was I was critical of him because of the way that he talked in the last few weeks of this campaign. He played the race card against Paul Vallis. Um, he said this was you know this race was about black labor versus white wealth. You know he really did sort of drop the hammer on the racial identity politics, but it worked. He won overwhelmingly in the majority black wards on the South side. And he also did that while winning lakefront liberals. So it was the, you know, sort of upper class white progressives who, who ended up voting for, for Brandon Johnson. You know, Paul Vallis was running sort of a, a more centrist. He was a Democrat, but I think, you know, they portrayed him as being a, a Republican and he was running very much a law and order campaign backed by the you know police unions and and that that simply turned off some of these lakefront liberals who decided they'd rather stick with uh, a progressive so i mean listen it's i talked to a lot of folks who who live in chicago who are absolutely flabbergasted that Brandon Johnson won and are fearful of what's going to come next because he is going to I mean a lot of people thought that you know it was Lori Lightfoot's sort of left-wing progressive policies that got us into this mess and got her evicted from the office and to turn around and elect someone who is, has basically all the same views, you know, on steroids is, is going to lead the city to, to a dark place. We'll see. I mean, we'll see what he, what he ends up doing and uh, you know, the proof will be in the pudding, but if he's going to go down the defund the police road, um, if he's going to go down capitulating to the public sector unions, the pensions are already massively underfunded. I mean, it's a fiscal nightmare. So it's fairly ominous. The city's in a very, I think, precarious position, and we'll see how he tries to 
lead the city forward. There's one point about that I'd make, though, and that was he had said as recently as you know a year ago, he'd been at rallies, defund the police. He, he'd, he'd walk that walk. He'd gone to these demonstrations. Once he started running for mayor, he never said that. Well, not only that, Carl, he lied and said he never said it. Well, that's what I was about <laughs> to say. He, more than that, he denied saying it, and he made it sound like if you said he said it, you were playing a dirty trick. And the reason I bring that up is not because I'm not I'm not talking about whether he told the truth or not, Tom. What I'm getting to is it wasn't really a referendum on law and order like you had in New York, because this guy didn't run on his record. And consequently, I don't think the voters of Chicago really know how he feels about law enforcement or what he intends to do. So my guess is you'll you'll find out pretty quickly. But this was not a guy running against this was not he didn't run against the police department. He made a point that he wasn't doing that. No, and he, he tried to he tried to turn that and say, listen, I'm for funding two hundred detectives and for investing in the police, not in more cops on the street, but in mental health services and all that. We got a piece on the New York Times yesterday afternoon from Jonathan Wiseman. Chicago is Chicago's mayor's race a blueprint for Dems. Democrats messaging on crime. Is this the new way that they should approach the issue of crime moving forward? So we shall see. Well, Phil, is the GOP looking at this and drawing any conclusions? And I'm talking both about uh, Chicago and Wisconsin, because the Wisconsin race, there may have been other issues, but the two main issues, as I understand it, were abortion and redistricting. So you had the two big um, uh, issues that we saw last time around this from the Democratic point of view, sort of, you know, an attack on democracy and attack on women's right to choose. Since Governor Walker left office there, the Wisconsin Republican Party has tried to redistrict their way out of all sorts of sins. And from my understanding, they didn't have a competitive ground game. They didn't have the infrastructure necessary to win this thing. And they were not prepared to confront a candidate who was uh, completely open about her priorities. And those priorities included abortion specifically. I think that when it comes to Chicago, though, it's going to set up a very interesting moment where Republicans aren't going to shy away from their tough on crime rhetoric like they might be tempted to with uh, you know, what we saw on abortion in Wisconsin. And Republicans on this issue, they think they have Democrats on the ropes, and they would point to um, President Biden announcing that he wouldn't veto uh, a D.C. Uh, city council bill that would have lessened policing in this city. Democrats are of the opinion that in order to win over moderate voters, they can't appear too soft on the issue. And so I think that Republicans, you know, will lean in to crime and they might think twice about how they address the abortion question. Carl, you see it that way? I mean, because it does seem like there's been this string of evidence that the abortion position of the sort of traditional GOP just you know, is a loser time and time again. Well, it's interesting, Andy, because it depends very much on what state we're talking about. The two parties, if you put their platforms together, the when the Republican Party had political platforms at its conventions pre-Donald Trump, the right to life plank was pretty, was absolutist. Uh, abortion's the taking of a human life. And we call as Republicans on the president to appoint federal judges to the bench who agree with that position. Pretty pretty absolutist position. It's a position of, depending on how you word the question, between you know 5 and 8% of the people in the United States. The Democratic position, equally uh, absolutist, I don't want to use words like extreme, that abortion is a woman's right, period, any reason, any trimester. 
she doesn't have to consult her husband. Uh, minor children don't have to consult their parents. I mean, basically suggesting that abortion on demand is, is a woman's absolute right or a girl's right. And the state has no more business involving itself in that decision as it does if she wants her wisdom teeth out. That's about a 10% position in the country. So if you're being very liberal-minded about it, and I mean liberal, not in the left-right sense, the two political parties, their views leave about 80% of Americans unrepresented. About three-fourths of Americans have a much more nuanced view. They think it's a serious thing. They think a woman, they certainly believe in it, rape and incest. They believe a woman really wants it and she makes a well-informed decision. Yet you can proselytize to her about adoption and other things, but that's fundamentally a right. And so while each party is extreme, the Republicans have gone around this country leading with their chin. They make themselves sound extreme. They don't try to appeal to the middle. They don't try to talk to the people I'm talking about, the, the, the great bulk of voters in the middle. And the Democrats do to the point of lying about their position or exaggerating it, maybe is a better word, minimizing what they really believe in, obfuscating. But that's politics. They've done a much better job of explaining what they believe in than what Republicans have. And even having said all that, I think the the Democrats are probably closer to the majority than the Republicans are. So yeah, it's a problem and it's going to be a problem going forward. Quickly to Cannon's point, I remember shortly after Dobbs, when we interviewed former Vice President Mike Pence, he told us that he supported a lot of these state bans on abortion um, as early as when a heartbeat was detected. And his reasoning was consistent with who he is as a you know evangelical conservative. Uh, he argued there are some things more important than politics. And so th- the the follow-up is a lot of these pro-life folks, they will insist that if only we could make the argument correctly, like w- like it was made in Florida in Governor DeSantis's campaign or, or Senator Marco Rubio's campaign, then this won't be a problem for us. Well, some Republicans are prepared to make this argument and others clearly are not, uh, where for Democrats, abortion access has been bread and butter for some time, and they're ready for this kind of fight. Whereas it seems that a lot of the Republicans who are happy to promise the pro-life lobby that they opposed abortion never thought that they'd actually have to campaign on this issue, and they're getting caught flat-footed. Well, let me say one last, final thing, Andy. We, abortion had been the law of the land so long, since the early 70s, and, and longer in some states, New York, um, California, where I'm from, that you know there was a legitimate conservative legal arguments we made, you leave it alone under the doctrine of stare decisis. Sam Alito rejected that. Uh, it, it seemed to me that it seemed to me that Chief Justice John Roberts wanted to just uphold the statute, the, the state statute being challenged. But Alito wanted to go further. He, he basically, he wanted to say what he did say, that Roe was wrongly decided. The upshot of that is, is that we were taking away a constitutional right. Now, from women in this country. Now, now Sam Alito's position was it should never have been granted that, that Roe v. Wade was horrible jurisprudence. And, and you know what? You could, we could stipulate to all that. We could say that everything he believed about Roe was correct. It still had the effect in the political world of taking away a right that people had grown up with, two, three generations of women in this country. That was, we talked about this early on, and the polling didn't show that most Americans would be moved by it, but more were moved by it than the polling showed. And I think that's the reason, because if you get in the position taking rights away from Americans, we're not used to that. We don't like it. And that goes way back before abortion was even an issue. So there's a sort of a cosmic issue here 
where it looks to me like the Republicans are on the not on the wrong side of American public opinion, but kind of on the wrong side of Republicanism itself. And this is a problem for them. Well, Phil, I want to talk about what happened Thursday at the White House. The uh, White House released its own assessment, uh, its handling of the withdrawal from Afghanistan. I looked at WikiHow. I don't know if you ever checked WikiHow, but it tells you how to do things. And I was looking at how you write your own performance review, which was basically what the White House did. And I want to ask you how you think uh, the White House did. The, this was the advice from WikiHow. You can find it on the internet. It says about writing your own performance review. Keep other people out of it. Now is not the time to criticize other people's work or personalities. It is also not a good idea to compare yourself to other people in the review when highlighting an achievement. You can highlight what you've done without denigrating colleagues who didn't achieve the same thing. So how'd the White House do? Uh, have they been reading WikiHow, you think? I'm wondering if some of the junior staffers in the uh, press department were Googling that, and that's why the briefing was delayed more than an hour. Just to set the scene um, for folks at home here, the administration had been promising for some time that there was going to be an assessment of how the United States handled its withdrawal from Afghanistan. And reporters had asked when that would be available. Um, Over the course of the last couple of months, we got no indication uh, of what the timetable would be. And then 10 minutes before an already delayed briefing going into a holiday weekend, the White House decided to drop it. It took every reporter in that room by surprise. And John Kirby, the president's national security spokesperson, basically came out to field questions from reporters about this document that those reporters did not read. Even the fastest speed reader in the world probably couldn't read it and comprehend it and then come up with with follow-up questions. So it was this mad dash in a briefing to try and press the White House on how they think they did. The main takeaway here has been that the White House, and they might fail that uh, WikiHouse standard that you mentioned moments ago, the White House put the blame on the previous administration. The White House put the blame on the uh, Afghan government for melting away in front of the Taliban and ISIS-K. Uh, the administration said, yeah, we probably could have done a better job processing some of these visas, but we were put in a really tough spot. And when you pressed them repeatedly on who was going to be held accountable, um, or if there were any breakdowns in the um, intelligence community's assessment, uh, they continuously deflected. And at one point, it was it was frankly laughable. You had John Kirby saying that this is uh, quote not an accountability document, and then they they blamed the previous administration. It was not something that left reporters in that room uh, very impressed, and no one left that room thinking that the White House just suddenly thought that, um, you know, the Thursday before the Easter weekend was the right time to drop this. This was clearly a news dump. Yeah. You know, we've only seen the extract, and that may be all we'll ever see. I I guess it's about a 10 or 14-page document. But, Tom, this is what it said in part. It said, the departing Trump administration had left the Biden administration with a date for withdrawal, but no plan for executing it. And after four years of neglect, and in some cases, deliberate degradation, crucial systems, offices, and agency functions that would be necessary for a safe and orderly departure were in disrepair. Do you think anyone's going to buy this or 
Is it just trying <laughs> to pass the buck? No, nobody's going to buy this. I mean, listen, you can argue those things, right? You could you could lay those things out that Biden was left in a tough spot. Okay, fine. Stipulate to that. Um, but none of that explains what occurred in August of 2021, the way that the administration conducted this withdrawal. That's, I think, what people want to know and understand and want accountability for. The hundreds of millions of, you know, billions of dollars worth of equipment just abandoned, which the Taliban now controls. The killing of the Marines outside the gates of the airport in Kabul was 13 or 15 U.S. Marines lost their lives uh, under this administration's watch that had nothing to do with Donald Trump or the, the, the position that the administration was left in when he took office in January. This was seven months later. These decisions were all made by Joe Biden. He had stipulated that his advisors, and we had we had congressional testimony about this, about the advice that was given to him. They didn't want him to do this. Uh, he ignored their advice. He did it anyway. And so, no, nobody's going to buy the blaming of the previous administration for for how the withdrawal. I think, again, polling on this, a majority of Americans approved of, wanted to see us exit Afghanistan. That's one of the reasons Trump was trying to initiate that during his administration. It's not an issue of whether the public wanted us to leave the the issue is how we left, how chaotic it was, how deadly it was, uh, how we left so many people behind to even this day, we're still trying to get people out of Afghanistan. It was a disaster and nobody in this administration has ever been held accountable for it. Yeah. And really quickly, just going down the list, you had John Kirby saying that from his point of view, he did not see chaos. Well, if you roll tape, during that August withdrawal, uh, the president's national security spokesperson said that there was chaos at the airport there in, in Kabul. And clearly, we can watch some of the video of people hanging off the sides of U.S. aircraft falling to their, their deaths when they're trying to get out of that country. Obviously, there was chaos. Kirby also addressed this argument about the equipment that was left behind. And he said, well, the U.S. military equipment that was actually left behind were some ladder trucks, forklifts, and firefighting equipment that were still at that airport sort of skirting the issue, which is we had given $7 billion in military equipment, according to the Department of Defense, to the Afghans, but then we withdrew the technical support for them to be able to use that equipment. And that is what has fallen into the hands of, of the Taliban there. On the general question of accountability, though, I asked the administration today, point blank, whether or not they included in their assessment this July 2021 cable from the U.S. Embassy in Kabul questioning whether or not the United States was prepared to withdraw. And John Kirby referred me to the State Department. He didn't have any answer. But on the question of when the president realized that the intelligence that he was getting from his sources on the ground, the intelligence community was was wrong because he had said prior to the withdrawal that um, you know Kabul wouldn't fall, that the Afghan government could stand up to the Taliban. He you know said, look, the intelligence community they worked really hard, and that they, they did their best. When I asked him point blank, though, again, is anyone going to be held accountable for uh, their mistakes for giving the the president the wrong impression of what was happening? 
he shot back that um, he wasn't certain how often I looked at intelligence or classified information, but that it is a mosaic. I think that's the the, the phrase that he used. That is the phrase he used. And <laughs> the, the average person outside of Washington, D.C. who doesn't keep connections with the, the blob, they don't care about all of these questions of which intelligence department um, said what, when, you know, were the timetables correct? Was the Doha agreement that the previous administration entered into, um, you know, uh, the nail in the coffin? They, they have a really simple question, and that is, who is accountable for this massive screw up? And John Kirby might say that there wasn't chaos now. He certainly said that there was last year, but the American people have already made up their mind. They saw that there was chaos there, and they're seeing now that no one has been held accountable. Carl, any political fallout from this? Any any political price to be paid? I mean, it does seem like they dump this on a Thursday and blame it on the previous administration and dust their hands and say we're moving on. I don't know in the sh- I don't I don't know specifically about Afghanistan, but th- the American people aren't stupid. At least I I hope they aren't. Um, if this guy's answer to everything is to blame Trump, that's not going to wear well. When this Chinese balloon went across the slowly across the United States, taking high res stealing secrets from our military bases and they refused to shoot it down. And they had three or four explanations for why they, one of them was they, that the debris might hit people on the head. I, that was the one that I understood. The other ones I couldn't understand. Well, that at well, least made sense. And, to then, me. and then Biden said that um, they weren't sending stuff back to China. Now they admit they sort of yesterday. Oh yeah, by the way, they were doing that. But the one that really struck out at me, the, the, the one that showed their cynicism was some nameless Pentagon guy said, Oh yeah, these balloons happened all the time when Trump was president. And the Trump administration, including people who have denounced Trump publicly, said, what the hell? <laughs> Trump, I mean, the answer, if the answer to every question that you do wrong is Donald Trump, at some point people say, wait a minute. I mean, it reminds me of my early reporting days that the Miami Cubans would blame everything on Castro. If they had a flat tire, they'd say, oh, Castro did this. This is what, this is what Biden's like. Oh, Trump did it. This thing that they released uh, on Thursday about Afghanistan, there was something I was looking for in there. You know, the president said himself at a press conference that no one had ever suggested to him and his, his military advisors ever that there was a chance that they could keep a residual force there. I, I remember at the time thinking, well, that's just an obvious lie. If, if, they, if nobody suggests that, they should all be fired. This document sort of, it skirts that, but it suggests that this was discussed with the president. And the conclusion they made, we know because of how they left Afghanistan, but it's not addressed very well in the document. They go on and say, well, because Trump, again, Trump had reduced the force to 2,500 people, you couldn't have kept the country stabilized with just 2,500 soldiers and sailors and Marines. So you might would have had to add a few. But that was the original question that was asked. What about if we'd had a force of 3,500 or 4,000, could that have kept Afghanistan stable? They've yet to answer that question. They lied about that they'd ever discussed it. This document circles all around that without ever addressing it. And it just looks like a classic, just a classic cover your ass explanation. And without any attempt, because of, I assume, partisan political concerns, uh, and this guy's talking about running again, even if he's in a prison cell. So I understand why they've got their eye on Trump. But I think the American people deserve more than that. I think they want more than that. I think they'd like a real accounting what happened there so it doesn't happen again. I think we'll leave it there. Um, I want to thank Phil Wegman, Carl Cannon, Tom Bevan. 
We're usually here Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays in some form. So bookmark this podcast, come back often. It's Passover season. Easter is upon us. So good time to step away from politics. Spend a little time thinking about those things that matter most in life. I know I treasure this time of year, and I'll be spending it with friends and family. I hope you can do the same. And as ever, I urge you to go to Real Clear Politics and read one article from a writer or publication with whom you disagree. It may open your eyes to a point of view not previously considered. And that's a good thing in this season of renewal. So thank you for listening. Until next time, for Real Clear Politics, I'm Andrew Fallworth.